Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious, this show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the history of the dormitory, and you'll join me in hearing about Yay College and New College West, a multi-building dormitory complex at Princeton University. Yay College was called New College East when this episode was originally recorded. The word dormitory is from the Latin root word dormir, which means to sleep. The word found its way into Old French and Old English in the 1300s. By the 1700s, the word was used to describe the residence hall of a college or university. In the U.S., the first dormitories were those associated with the colonial colleges, being Harvard, the College of William and Mary, Yale, UPenn, Princeton, Columbia, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth. The classic image of the dormitory in American culture is a reflection of the buildings forming the core campuses of these universities. They typically have three to six stories with flat roofs, crenellated or hipped roof lines faced with brick, brownstone, or limestone, and designed in a collegiate Gothic or colonial style. On the inside, they're often laid out around a single staircase or entrance with bedrooms organized around common living areas. 
In the early days of the colonial colleges, attending college was reserved for a small number of mostly wealthy white males, often studying to become preachers. Today, there are 23 million university students in the United States. Notably, college enrollment has grown three to 6% per year since 2010, far outpacing US population growth of 0.3 to 0.5% per year over the past few years. About 40% of students today live in dormitories. What dormitories look like has also changed over time from the colonial colleges. That includes new design trends from neoclassical to international to modern to postmodern. In an article for Surface Magazine, writer Ryan Wadoops talks about a new breed of dormitory called dormzillas. These are windowless dorms that are meant to increase density where land is a precious resource. The University of Texas took this route by skirting building codes using an exception allowed in the International Building Code to fully sprinkler buildings. Perhaps the most famous example is Munger Hall at the University of California, Santa Barbara. The 4,500-bed dormitory is being paid for by billionaire investor Charlie Munger, and 94% of the rooms don't have windows based on Munger's specifications. Architecture critic Paul Goldberger called it a grotesque sick joke, a jail masquerading as a dormitory. The link to this article in Service Magazine is in the show notes. Dorms are not the only new things on campus. During three years of Zoom college, dormitories across the country were mostly empty. Fall 2022 saw the rise of the revenge co-ed. That resulted in surging enrollment and historic levels of on-campus housing demand with longer wait lists than ever before. Traditionally, market-rate housing around universities are preferred off-campus housing options, particularly for upper-class people who want more independence. But with runaway inflation contributing to skyrocketing rents, that has become less appealing. Universities with insufficient housing often resort to leasing nearby hotels, like Florida Atlantic University did this year. Some had to go even further by incentivizing local alumni to open their homes to students as boarders. For example, the University of Utah was able to house 100 students by offering alumni $5,000 per semester. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in January 2022 with architect Arthi Krishnamurthy. Arthi is a senior principal at 10 Burke, which is the new name of Deborah Burke Partners, the New York City-based design firm. Prior to Deborah Burke Partners, Arthi worked at and started her career at Pelly Clark Pelly. Last season, we had architect Raphael Pelly of Pelly Clark Pelly on the show. Arthi is a graduate of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the University of Pennsylvania. Enjoy the conversation. And 
If you are interested in more stories related to housing and impact, visit the Commonplace website. Commonplace is the company I founded to make it easier to finance impactful real estate projects. Thank you so much for being here with us, Arthi. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So you have now had the opportunity to do design projects all across the country before uh, this project here in Princeton that we're going to be focusing on. So which of these projects stand out the most for you and what have you taken away from them? So we do do work all over the country. We've designed a series of hotels called the 21C Museum Hotels in cities such as Durham, Oklahoma City, Nashville, Cincinnati. And most of them are adaptive reuse projects, reimagining all buildings to be, in this case, a hospitality destination mm-hmm. that combines the display of 21st century art, much of which is by living artists, mm-hmm. a boutique hotel experience, and a restaurant focused on local cuisine. In fact, more than half our practice is involved in the transformation of all buildings for new uses in adaptive reuse. And from that work, we've learned to develop a very authentic language that is specific to the existing building and to its place. Again, heightening one's experience and understanding of the place. This authentic placemaking is something that comes out of our adaptive reuse work, but we use that way of thinking in our new construction projects as well, in all our projects. And I'll refer to some of this as we talk about Princeton. Excellent. So digging into the new residential colleges, as I mentioned, my parents don't live very far away. And we actually record very close to the university as well, record this podcast at the Michael Graves. Um, So I can gush about how epically beautiful the town is and the university is. But rather than hear from me, I want to hear from you and let our listeners understand what is so particularly unique and special about the, the place and the, the site that you have had the opportunity to design it? It is a beautiful campus. It's stunning, in fact. Mm-hmm. Its garden setting is so beautiful that it's described as an arboretum. Our site has on one of its sides an area of woodland, and this is special. There aren't very many wooded places left on campus. It's also just south of one of the main recreation fields on campus called Pole Field. But to understand this particular site in context, let me explain that the new residential colleges are the first step in the university's 10-year campus dump, which includes expanding across Lake Carnegie. So today, the site sits on the edge of campus, but as the campus grows southward, its situation will become much more in the heart of campus. And so we tried to anticipate how students and faculty move through the campus today and tomorrow, how they might traverse the site, how it can really become part of that connective tissue of the campus. And that's the idea of this long-term trajectory, not just building for today, but literally in the case of an institution like university, building for generations to come. That's right. I mean, these buildings will be there for a long period of time. I sure hope so. Yeah. (laughs) And it becomes part of the campus fabric. Mm. So making decisions need to be both deliberate and very forward-looking. And I think we've done a good job of 
analyzing the languages of movement, for instance, on the existing campus and being sure to, in some cases, continue them, in some mm-hmm. cases, improve them, and be really forward-thinking on what it can be. Mm-hmm. So I think for listeners to understand how particularly unique designing a residential college at Princeton is, despite, I mean, in addition to the, the locational aspects that you described, it's very important to understand the residential college system at Princeton, as well as the eating clubs. Could you understand, explain rather, what that system is for undergraduates and also compare what that system is for graduates? I will say that because of my experience with this project, I'm more familiar with undergraduate life. So Mm -hmm. let me speak to that. The residential college system is meant to provide students with a community they feel they belong to and a sense of identity associated with that community. So you might meet a proud Princetonian. And the first thing they might say is, I went to Princeton. And the second thing they might say is, I went to Forbes College, which is one of the current residential colleges. And what that does is it values community and it values a sense of belonging to that community. The residential colleges that we are designing are actually four-year colleges, and meaning that they will house students from first year all the way to fourth year. Many of the residential colleges currently are two years, mm-hmm. and then there is an upper-class tradition to join eating clubs. Eating clubs are not quite akin to fraternities. Eating clubs are instead more of a combination of dining halls and social halls, social mm-hmm. clubs. But you have to get through a selection process to be part of them. So this is, as a sophomore, you go through the selection process to be part of them as a third-year or fourth-year student. And that selection process, which is called Bicker, is, of course, in the term selection itself, an exclusive process. Some of you will get in, some of you won't get in. Mm -hmm. And there is then also built-in a feeling of some can be there, some can't be there, you may not get the one that you choose. And Princeton is aware of this, and it's part of the reason why these residential colleges are offering a four-year option. It's so that optionality is provided, and Mm -hmm. I think choice is something that is very important to students and is very important to all people choice in, you know, what is your community, what is your dining experience, Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be assumed that one size fits all. And so in our residential colleges, we will have accommodations for third and fourth year students. And in fact, we have to think a little bit about how do you compete with the eating clubs? How do you make sure the third and fourth year students want to live in these residential colleges? So it's not like the sad alternate version. No, exactly. It shouldn't be the sad ultimate version. And so we thought a lot about, and we call this giving them a capstone experience. What is a capstone experience for third year and fourth year students? And in designing the residence halls, we put rooms for third and fourth year students, often singles, in a way that they were arranged in a group with a open space, a social space between them so that they could be a virtual suite, giving them, you know, the the combination of privacy and community that they might see. 
We also put them at the ends of each of these buildings where they might have something that is specific and interesting that the architecture can offer. And that could be special windows or that could be great view. You know, if you think about a great living experience you might have had in an old building, it may have been, all right, me and my three juniors roommates are in this attic space in an old building and boy was that a cool space and mm-hmm. that's a capstone experience so we try to recreate that kind of specificness specialness in these rooms at the ends of the bars so that we can offer an experience that is special and does attract the third year and fourth year students as i said the eating clubs are part dining hall part social club Mm-hmm. And so in providing dining alternatives, we also have associated with the third year and fourth year experiences kitchens so that they can do some of their own cooking. Mm-hmm. And on campus, this will be another option. There are co-ops, for instance, that students are part of, that they can make their meals in together and find a sense of community. So now this is another option in a constellation of options, giving third and fourth year students choice in the community that they want to be part of. Mm, okay. And then in the context of that, because you mentioned that uh, the client, the university was aware of some of the challenges uh, that come with the upper class system that you mentioned, uh, the eating clubs, what was the specific project brief that the university gave you at the outset? And then how did you go about preparing the, the design response? So, Princeton is, I've found them to be very thoughtful and sophisticated in thinking about residential life. And they gave us a very nice brief. They came to us with a value proposition, well-set, well-developed set of fundamental objectives that they Mm -hmm. want to achieve. They wanted the residential colleges to enhance student well-being, to integrate living and learning, and to foster a sense of community and responsibility. We then start our process, and we always start our process with careful listening. And we listen to the experience and ambitions of students and administrators, and we made out with some unexpected discoveries along the way. We then go into a process that translates this into architecture. And so we design the buildings to integrate the inside and the outside connecting the colleges to the site and the landscape. And our design sought to build community around hallways. We Mm -hmm. realized quite early on that hallways, corridors, are in fact in res life a real asset. We designed a way that the doors in the residence rooms could be held open by students if they desired and took a very simple tap. We put doors across from doors. Mm-hmm. So one set of roommates could have an open door to the hallway, open to another door, which might be open to another set of roommates. And so you can kind of imagine a cacophony of yelling across the hallway, <laughs> of sharing music across the hallway. And that is the first building block of community. And so mm. we thought about halls, hallways as an asset, an opportunity, and the first of concentric rings of community that you can build, starting there and moving outwards. We also designed spaces 
to be visible, to be interconnected, to have views out to the campus so that you build in an awareness of each other, mm-hmm. a sense of place in your surrounds, in your community, and in your region and beyond. To instill a sense of responsibility, the responsibility we all have to each other, to give visibility to each other so you have that feeling of responsibility. Mm, okay, so we've talked about the the building blocks of this amazing project and understand it's two buildings. So tell us a little more about the numbers that are associated with this number of beds, the square footage, so our listeners get, are starting to get a vision of what the, the large scale of this project. Yeah, it's actually eight buildings, but let me explain. So it's two residential colleges mm-hmm. on 12 acres, and each college will house 500 students, so 1,000 in total. They each have their own dining hall, but with a shared server and kitchen. And the project in total is about 500,000 square feet. There is a 20-foot grade change from the top of the site to the bottom of the site. And in that, we saw a real sectional opportunity. We designed a continuous base that would hold a lot of the college programs. College programs are things that are more university public facing, things like common rooms, college offices, the dining rooms, they all sit within this base level. And on top of that base sits eight residence halls. And each of these residence halls have individual floors that hold about 20 or so students. And in each of the residence floors, there's also a living room space. That's really key because that is the living room for that community. And that essentially becomes the the tying thread for all of the buildings themselves that essentially are at the same level. It's Sonoas, for example, in New Jersey, now more occasionally than previously before. But is that also an opportunity for people to travel between both buildings without having to necessarily put on heavy coats and boots? Yep, that's exactly right. We learned this from the students during that listening period, Mm -hmm. that it was not really convenient, not really conducive, to building friendships, to hanging out with each other. And we did learn during programming, during listening, that students have different modes of studying, including, you know, this singular concentrated study. You might do this in a room, you might do this in a library, you might do this, honestly, in a dining hall where there is background noise, if that suits you. But there's also a different mode of studying called social study. Mm -hmm. And so... To acknowledge that there are different ways of studying and that there is a need to socialize, we didn't build an interior and continuous path Mm. through this podium. This podium is an opportunity for that. So that a student does not need to put on their coat and their boots to get from one part of the building to the other part of the building to go see a friend group, whether to study or just to hang out. Mm-hmm. And this was something that was important to the students and the podium allowed us to do. So the core of Princeton's campus is in a collegiate Gothic style, similar to UPenn, Yale, and for example, Duke University, many others that use that particular style, uh, which is incredibly iconic. There are a next generation of buildings at Princeton that integrate a wide set of different architectural styles and material palettes. Um, Could you talk to us about 
what you see as the, the visible materials that someone would be looking at, feeling or touching as they're walking through these new buildings? So we designed these buildings. I'll start by saying we designed these buildings to be contemporary. Mm-hmm. And Princeton was founded in 1764. It has a real historic and intellectual underpinning that gives the institution place, depth, and context. And we saw an opportunity here to consider how a place that was built for people 200, 300 years ago could also be built for you today. Mm-hmm. How do you demonstrate, how do you evidence change, and how do you speak to relate to this contemporary generation of students? And so deliberately, these buildings are designed in a contemporary style rather than mimicking the old. The other thing you'll see as you approach these buildings is a transparent base. And, you know, this may not seem revolutionary on its own, but many of the historic buildings on campus do take stone all the way down to the ground. Like they a fortress. Facades all the way <laughs> you can't see in. And if you mm-hmm. can't see in, you can't know what's happening inside to know that you want to go participate, to be mm-hmm. part of that. And so as you approach these buildings, what you see is a transparent base with visibility in let's say, at the first college into a common room. And you can decide, I want to join this friend group or not. And Or you can decide, I want to go in there and sit near them, but not participate, which is also something that students say that they wanted the opportunity to do. So not always jump in, but be able to observe before you jump in. Mm-hmm. The buildings themselves are designed with a warm brick. And that warm brick takes the tones and the warmth of the shifts that you see on the historic buildings. So when you view the buildings, and now you can, most of the brick is up, when you view the buildings from, let's say, the other side of Pole Field, and you can see it in context with the historic buildings, you do see between the use of a material that is very sympathetic to the historic fabric and also a roof line that we designed that is picturesque, that varies against the sky, just as the historic buildings do. Between the two, you see a very sympathetic language, even though one is contemporary and not historic. A key feature of the plan that you described, the 10-year plan, is the growth of the student body at Princeton. Talk to us more about who goes to Princeton now and who will be going in the future. Right. So the impetus for this project to build two new residential colleges from Princeton's side was to support Princeton's expansion of their undergraduate population, which they are growing to increase the diversity of their student body, broadening access to the education that they offer. From this institutional objective, we took our charge to be How do you design residential colleges to welcome and accommodate the experience of all students? Mm -hmm. To design it in a way that you never leave a student saying or feeling, I'm here, but this is somebody else's Princeton. But instead that this place says that it was designed for for me too, that Mm -hmm. it's my Princeton as well. I think you and I and perhaps many of the listeners ought to have had experiences where you don't feel welcome, where you Mm -hmm. feel like an outsider, 
you don't feel like you belong. So to me and to our firm, this was very important, you know, to think through this and really try to deliver on it. I think what you're describing is very emotionally resonant for me in particular, because what you're describing was exactly my own experience. Uh, when I arrived at Princeton's campus for admit weekend, that's the weekend that after they've given admissions offers for those that are choosing, considering to come, one of the first feelings that I had was looking at the, the minivan that my family came in to the university with uh, compared to the, the stunningly beautiful foreign cars that were parked in the parking lot. And I mean, just looking at the way I looked, the way I dressed, et cetera, it just felt so out of sync with everything that was there. And I think it wasn't particularly anything that anyone had said or anything that was expressed that made me feel that way. But I think particularly the things that you are describing in terms of the very subtle strategies of how buildings can evoke a sense of place for everybody is so powerful because I think that can prevent perhaps a next generation of students from psyching themselves out of going to a place as wonderful and transformational as Princeton. And I think it takes a truly special architect to understand that there are many ways of saying things and oftentimes it's not the words that are important it's the physical objects that can count for a lot as well. Princeton is undertaking a number of initiatives to think about the same problem and that goes in the built environment I will say too you know that goes from everything from thinking about wayfinding do you need to arrive at a campus and feel lost Or can you have good wayfinding so you feel a sense of autonomy and you feel that you you can belong to this campus in short order rather than having to learn it over the course of the year. But in terms of architecture, I know architecture can only do so much. But as much as architecture can present signals and cues for exclusion, it can send signals and cues for welcome. And so... Doing what we can and with architecture, nudging perceptions, nudging behavior, it's all worth doing. Mm-hmm. So I think tied to that, mental health is particularly a challenge for students during the pandemic. And we've seen that talked about in the news uh, very frequently over the past two years. Could you talk about some of the issues that are related to that, particularly for international students for whom um, the, this might be their first experience in the United States, experiencing tons of change. How the design of a building can help accommodate and make some of those transitions uh, easier for folks. And I think we, we talked a little bit about that earlier in terms of the, the layouts of rooms. But are there other things that you consider beyond that as well? Very early on, we thought a lot about loneliness. Loneliness is is something... Again, I fully understand that architecture cannot solve on its own. Mm-hmm. But we did choreograph the way students will make their way to their rooms to follow a path that would take them past other students, to give them the opportunity to join a friend group or similarly make the choice not to if they don't feel like it, but that the opportunity to socialize is offered to them. You know, we designed that interior network of ways to get from one place to the other without putting your shoes and boots on, for instance. That's all part of that. It's an offer. It's a social offer. You have the opportunity to go be with other people. 
And we created various scales of spaces for groups to gather, but we also created spaces for solitude and respite. And I think this is important to acknowledge that you need sometimes alone time Mm -hmm. and time for reflection or time to withdraw. Students work very hard and it can get super stressful and having a quiet place to take a breather is also key. And the last thing we did, I would say, is to create moments where they could see and experience the beauty of nature, to help them snap out of their day-to-day, to give them a sense that they are part of something bigger, mm-hmm. to give them maybe a moment of joy, a sense of perspective, I hope. And I think that's healthy, too. So the experience of designing a project involves many different types of designers. And we, we talked a little bit about that earlier, about how oftentimes in the design process in the United States, those experiences are really uh, silent. But there was a number of other firms that you worked with on this project that added additional layers to the design, such as artwork. Uh, could you talk about those other folks that are part of this design process and how their work and their selections played a part in the larger whole? Yeah. We work, as I mentioned, with many talented, talented people. One in particular I'd like to highlight is the work of a creative called Stephen Doyle and his firm, Doyle Partners. Mm-hmm. They helped us work with us to come up with a series of interventions, things that will give the students that moment of pause, of connection, even maybe a moment of wonderment. For instance, for example, In 16 scattered locations, we will install a prism to a window in a hallway or a nook space. And at some point, if you're in one of these spaces during the day, the prism will cast a rainbow on the floor or maybe even on the book you're reading. And our hope is that this will make you smile. Maybe this will make you have a moment. And you may not come across one of these prisms on your first week. You may not come across it even in your first month. But you will discover it over time. And maybe you'll tell a fellow student. And, you know, something of this place that isn't widely known is known to you. And that sense of discovery, we think, can also see blood. There's something that reminded me of is uh, Paul Lewis, who's a professor at Princeton, is uh, doing the design of a new dormitory at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And he mentioned that the treatment of the, the brick facade in that particular case, they opted for very unique, very beautiful corbels at each of the windows, which are actually different location by location when you look across the facade of the building. And those serve to bring different qualities of light and shadow that shift during the day that allow for this idea of wonder and change, um, which is actually kind of, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of cool to think about that because that means that as a designer, you are so observant and so willing to open your mind to think about what that experience is of someone, not just in a momentary sort of like a, a temporal way, but over the course of time, over the course of a semester and year, what could that, that experience be like? That's, very symbolic, I think, of the type of work that you do and the type of work that your firm does. I would love to hear from you now that you have done a good amount of the design process for the Princeton project, how you place this project in the larger portfolio of work that you've done at Deborah Burke, 
uh, both uh, previously and the projects that are perhaps coming down the pike, the the core ideas that you feel are a part of the strategy you'll deploy in the future and tied to your past projects on dormitory projects, residential projects? So almost all our residential life projects really do center around community. So we think a lot about inviting students to engage with one another and we give visibility to social spaces, interconnectedness between spaces. And we design the spaces to be a little open-ended, to be what we call non-prescriptive. So that students can, you know, decide how they want to use the space, even maybe move the furniture around and feel that sense of agency so that they feel a sense of ownership over the space that then translates to belonging. We design spaces for people to come together and for solitude. And sometimes we think also about our interior design in a way to think about how it can relate to many people. Sometimes being deliberately eclectic or deliberately relating to a place in a very authentic way so that it's, again, not stylistic in one way in say a Western canon or a Lux canon, but that it is eclectic in a purposeful way, authentic in a purposeful way that it can relate to many, many people. And I think that's what is important to us in our future work. And that's what has always driven us is going back to designing buildings to relate and to resonate with people. So that maybe they say, gee, I love it. And they may not say it, you know, the minute they walk in, Mm -hmm. but that they find something that resonates for them and they feel more connected to their place. That's a wonderful, wonderful ethos. And I think that's a terrific place for us to wrap up as well. Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell Magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.